0: For the month of January, it's been a great joy, I think, to work through four psalms about hearing and knowing God. Today, um, and through the course of the next couple of months, um, we're turning to hear what the Spirit has to say to us in the New Testament epistle of Ephesians. Ephesians is a remarkable letter. It offers a bird's eye view, an overview of Paul's theology. It's a bit like a panoramic landscape. Some years ago, Geraldine and I hopped on a plane in Essendon and took a dinner flight um, out over the CBD and came back to Essendon. And I was amazed as we circled around the CBD. I could see the familiar streets and buildings, some of which, of course, we knew and recognised. But the view from several thousand feet up provided a perspective of the city, which left me with a sense of wonder and amazement, really. It's a bit like that in Ephesians. Apostle Paul steps back, filled with wonder, and he surveys God's purpose and plan for the ages. (laughs) Paul writes that from before the creation of the world, God purposed that world history would reach a time of fulfilment. He says he will bring all things in heaven and earth together in Christ. From before the beginning of time, God planned To recover all that is presently divided, disjointed, broken and fragmented in pieces. Bring it all together in the unity of Christ. What a marvellous vision. What's even more remarkable, and I think Paul's almost stunned by this, that which moves him to wondrous praise and prayer is the place that God reserved for him. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul, formerly known as Saul, the devout Pharisee who persecuted and imprisoned the followers of Jesus, has now, in accordance with God's master plan, become the ambassador to the Gentiles. In fact, as Paul writes this, he describes himself as an ambassador in chains. 620, if you want to go as a reference. Most likely, Paul's writing from Rome, where he's detained awaiting trial before Caesar. He's going to die. In fact, most likely, chains or no chains, Paul is filled with wonder and gratitude for all that God has planned and is doing in Christ. Chapter one, verses three to fourteen. Paul opens the whole epistle with a it's like a like a of praise, a prayer of praise to the Lord. It's one single sentence in the Greek. That whole chapter, that whole passage, which Ross just read for us. Beautiful, lyrical, almost poetic Greek. It's like Paul reflecting on God's plan, he's just overawed by the magnificence of God's grace. He can't help but turn his thoughts to God and say, God, that's amazing, and worship Him. Verse 3 says, Praise be to the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's blessed us in the heavy realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul is relishing just the lavish generosity displayed by the Father in Christ. The only proper response he has, as we begin to understand the riches of God's grace, is to offer our lives back in worship to God. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here. Verse 4 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Some of you may have read the book, The Chosen. It's it's a little book and it was written in the late 60s by a fellow by the name of Shane Potok. It was on the English reading list when I was in high school. It's a long time ago. Potok tells the story of two Jewish boys who become friends growing up in Brooklyn, New York the boys' identities during their adolescence are formed by their Jewish Orthodox heritage, the expectations of their respective fathers, their respective members in the Jewish community in New York, and the tension created by this conservative Jewish community's contact with secular America. Reading the book, I remember being impressed by the Jewish community's powerful sense of identity as a people chosen by God to advance his purpose in the world. You talk to the Jews today, they feel the same way. There's a sense of being chosen by God. Paul says he chose us in him before the creation of the world. In the Jewish mind, Paul's words evoke the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God instructed Abraham to leave Ur in Mesopotamia and go to Canaan. Obedient in that place... He will become the father of many nations, blessing to the world. After a series of difficulties, you remember the story. He had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. One of them was chosen. Isaac was the chosen one. He married Rebekah. had two sons, Esau and Jacob. One of them was chosen. Jacob, later named Israel, chosen to be the father of the people, destined to carry the promise of God's blessing to the world. Rather than worshipping the pagan deities as the surrounding nations did, the people of God are seen as the servants of Yahweh. They're called to demonstrate the difference that makes when you worship the true God. Israel carried this sense of destiny, this chosen people, for 2,000 years even before Christ came. Psalmists and the prophets, you read through the Old Testament, talk of Israel as being the light of the world, a place where the Gentiles may gather and hear of the love and the grace of God. Paul now knows that it was God's intention from the very beginning to consummate all these purposes, not in the nation of Israel as such, but as in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, Paul goes on to say, That he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now they're scary words, holy and blameless. Who feels holy and blameless this morning? Not me. I think it's easy to hear these words and we think of it as sort of a legalistic injunction that we've got to be morally pure. And of course that's part of it. A life without sin. It's true that we are called to grow in the grace and love of God, to strive for maturity, for perfection in our lives, be ambassadors for the reign of God. That's all there. But of course, we're all prone to sin. As Israel's experience shows, you read through the scriptures, there's ongoing battle with the corrosive power of sin. So what's Paul getting at here? Holy and blameless. Well, we have got to go back to the old stories again. The people of Israel were chosen by God to live in a way that distinguished them from the surrounding nations. I've already said that. As a holy people of God, there was a strong sense that their lives were devoted to Yahweh. They were set apart from the nations around them to live in a way that honoured God. Being holy is a sense of being separate, practically speaking, Israel was identified by the rites of circumcision, keeping the Sabbath, the food laws, all that was there. It marked them off as being separate from everyone else. But more than that, the life of the nation of Israel was meant to be marked by love, a sense of justice and righteousness, consideration of the needs of the orphans, the widows, the poor. People weren't to be forgotten or left out. People meant to be brought into the community of God. That's what being set apart was. It was to be different to the people around them. Being answerable as servants of God for all that we're doing. It's not just doing the right thing, it's everything that encompasses all of our lives. Paul says, the Father has chosen us to be holy and blameless. What does that word mean? Blameless. Blameless comes, If you look at the Greek, it comes from the, from the cult of sacrifice in the Old Testament. You may remember that an animal was selected for sacrifice and had to be without blemish. The emphasis here is offering that which is best to God, without blemish. You didn't select the lamb from the flock, which was lame or crippled or misshapen in any way. You, you selected the best, that which was without blemish. In the temple cult, there was no place for mediocrity being second best. We don't offer our second best to God. We offer the first fruits of all that we do. Paul reminds us in Romans 12.1, we present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable service. We live as sacrifices. We live according to a different standard. Christ is our Lord. We're not so much concerned with the social norms, the regulations set by the world around us, the things that should and shouldn't be done in that sense. Rather, our our lives are ordered in such a way that all that we do is a sweet-smelling incense, a fragrance, an offering to God. We want to please God. It's our desire to serve him with our best, to serve Christ. Faithfully, I think the challenge is often to demonstrate what, life, what it looks like to live before God in a way that people can see that we're different. Um, I hope I've caught the sense here of being holy and blameless. Let's move on. Verse 5. Paul goes on to say that in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Those words... In love, verse seven says, "In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace." We sang that song just a few minutes ago, about the love of Christ being demonstrated. Love ran red, I think, was the phrase that caught my attention. The blood of Christ, given us speaks of his love for us, as adopted sons and daughters. We have redemption through. And what is this word redemption about? If we think back for a Jewish ordinance, redemption, and blood. It takes us back again to the Exodus story of the Passover. You remember the story? That the Israelites, they're slaves in Egypt. They're making bricks and pyramids and all that stuff. They're subject to their slave masters. They're in bondage. We read the story. Moses comes along and he says, "Okay, God's going to deliver you." Instructs them to take a lamb without blemish, slay it, take the blood, paste it across the doorposts and the lintels. And what happens? The angel of God passes over the land of Egypt. A number of people die, but those who are covered by the blood of the lamb across the lintels are saved. And as a consequence of that story, the people of God, the Israelites, are delivered. This is what it means to be redeemed. The slaves have been released from bondage. The Egyptian houses have been struck with judgment. But they've been rescued. That's what it is, to be redeemed. I note that the Israelite slaves were released from a hopeless position. There was no possibility that the Israelites could defy Pharaoh's mighty army and deliver themselves. They were in prison, they were locked up, and they weren't going anywhere. It was only through the gracious intervention of our loving God that Israel was liberated from a hopeless situation. This is the backstory when Paul speaks of redemption through the blood of Christ. God had intervened to rescue the Ephesian Christians from a hopeless position. He reminds them that this is the grace of God, and through the loving intervention of Christ Jesus on the cross, he came down from heaven, shed his blood, died upon a cross, and from that they are liberated from the hopelessness of slavery to sin, corruption and death. Their lives have been purchased at great cost. This is the love of Christ. If we turn pages in Ephesians to chapter 3, Paul says, "Prays that the saints may grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, he prays. The depth, the breadth, the height, the love of Christ. I don't think we can grasp it. Jesus himself said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. He goes on to say, no one has greater love than this. To lay down one's life for one's friends. Sometimes we think of the cross as this awful spectacle. Well, yeah. But it's the love of God shed abroad. For each one of us. Revelation 4, 5, I often turn to that scripture there. Heaven is opened, and we have a glimpse there of the living creatures worshipping around the throne of God. But what's startling there is the sight of the one sitting upon the throne. You'll remember, he who sits on the throne is a lamb looking as if it had been slain. The four living creatures the 24 elders, fall down and worship and sing, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We have been redeemed, paid for, rescued with the blood of Christ. In redemption, there is forgiveness of sins. I just want to pause the love of God on the cross. Forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, Paul goes on in Ephesians 1, speaks of reconciliation, of mending broken relationships. Restoring that which has been damaged and lost. The love of Christ knows no limits. On the cross, our sin has been destroyed, our brokenness is healed. We are reconciled to God and we are reconciled one to another. In Christ, there is recovery from the bitterness of hurt and abuse. In Christ, there is restoration of all that is shattered, fragmented, divided, hostility, warfare, grumpiness, it's all reconciled through forgiveness in Christ. Former enemies can live at peace one with another. I often think of the beauty pageants who walk what they call it, the stage and you ask them afterwards what they want and they say, well world peace and you think, well, it's a bit strange but here it is, world peace that's what Christ came to achieve to bring everything that was broken and shattered and destroyed and disintegrated all come together. This is at the heart of the universe. Jesus on the throne. The lamb that was slain. Drawing all things together in himself. This is God's plan from the dot. From the beginning of creation. So Christ offers redemption and forgiveness. Yet there's more going on here. Paul writes that Christ has lavished upon the Ephesian Christians verse 8 all wisdom and understanding the word there in Greek is Sophia wisdom the Greeks believed that Sophia was knowledge or questions about the eternal problems of life and death God and man, time and eternity it was the big stuff the word for understanding phrenesis, it's a different word and it's more about our grappling with the day-to-day problems of everyday living. So Paul's saying we've got both wisdom and understanding, both Sophia and Phrenesis in Christ. Being a Christian isn't just having your head in the clouds, with a head in cloudy stuff here this morning. It's also about living day by day and the problems associated with that. For the poor Christian is to be neither too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good, or blindly mired in the everyday affairs of time and circumstance. By the grace of a loving God, the Ephesian Christians have been rescued from the hopelessness of sin and death, reconciled with God one with another, granted the wisdom and understanding needed to live as the adopted children of God. So we're ambassadors to a lost world. The last verses of this passage, verses 13 and 14. Paul writes, Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. What's he talking about? Well, we have to go back again. It's imagery from the Old Testament once again. Hark back to the experience of the Israelite tribes liberated from slavery and Egyptian bondage. Remember the story. They come out of Egypt, they cross through the Red Sea and they're entering the wilderness. What do we know about that? you remember the pillar of fire and cloud that protected them from the Egyptians? That guided them on their way in the wilderness? The pillar of fire represented the presence of God's spirit, leading them on day by day. The spirit of wisdom and understanding never abandoned them. All they had to do was look for his presence, follow him. And he would take them to the land of promise, their inheritance. A land overflowing with milk and honey. As the people of God, the land of Canaan was their destiny, their goal, their inheritance. It's a gift of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit of Christ. In the midst of the Ephesian believing community, that guaranteed their inheritance. This is a foretaste of that which is to come. Verse 10 reminds us that when the time will have reached its fulfilment to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. Paul's talking about what's coming. Our inheritance. For the Israelites, it was the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. For us, we have an inheritance. And I think sometimes we forget that it's not just all what we see here in front of us. We have an inheritance that's coming to us. This is Paul's hope. There's a time coming when heaven and earth, in some strange, mysterious way, will be brought together. This will be the inheritance of the Ephesian believers. Yes, God has given them a taste of what it means to be adopted into the family of God. Now, the Spirit is here amongst us. Yet this is just the deposit. It's like buying a block of land. You just put the deposit up front, but you have to pay later for the whole lot. Just the deposit, walking in the wilderness, even accompanied by the pillar of fire. That did not compare for the Israelites with the hope of resting in the land of abundant milk and honey. The rest of the promised land. This is Paul's hope here. Yes, his heart is filled with gratitude as he contemplates the grace and the riches of God's provision. Yet he knows that this isn't all there is. There's more to come. He tells the Philippian believers that with the help of the Spirit, he lives for Christ, but his heart is torn by a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. There is more. So we see that there is a future inheritance to be gained, a life in eternity where heaven and earth are joined together under the rule of Christ. Life spent in the presence of God. I can't imagine what that's going to be like. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm closing. Just before I finish, I want to go back to Paul's description of himself. He describes himself in Ephesians 6 as an ambassador in chains. There's irony here. Who's ever seen an ambassador in chains? An ambassador is a citizen that represents the interests of a foreign country. They have diplomatic immunity. They don't run around in chains. By and large, they are able to come and go pretty much as they please. At this moment, as Paul writes, he doesn't look much like a foreign dignitary representing a great power, does he? He's in chains. might be house arrested, he might be in prison, we're not sure. My point is simply that appearances are often deceptive. Sometimes we look around and we think, well, there's not much going on here. Where is God? If God is truly both loving and all-powerful, how is it that this world is in such dreadful disarray? Why am I caught in this dismal situation which I'm in mean at the moment? The Apostle is not deceived. He's not focused on his misfortune, his isolation in Rome, his imprisonment, the discomfort of all of that. Brother, his heart is filled with thanks for the gracious riches that God has him at the foundation of the world, to bestow on his adopted sons and daughters in Christ. His mind is captured by the reconciling love that Jesus demonstrated for each one of us on the cross. Paul's heart wants to dance and sing aloud, inspired by the spirit that promises an abundant life in God. We can easily get so caught, can't we, in the day-to-day humdrum? Ephesians doesn't do that; it lifts us, wow, to a different place. So I think we're in for a bit of a treat over the next few weeks as we work our way through it. Let's join with Paul. We offer our lives in spirit-filled praise, adoration to our gracious God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes, "Who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in the name of Christ." Amen.